Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedley. Okay, I might have a theory here about the Betty and Barney Hill case, and it came out of a question I asked in kind of an offhanded way during last week's show. Mm-hmm. And that was whether they'd ever considered the possibility that Betty and Barney Hill were the victims of some kind of government experiment, which they rejected out of hand. And it wasn't meant as an insult to Betty Hill's niece or to Stan Friedman. It's just something about the layout, something about the situation that may generate that particular possibility. Now, obviously, the first thing about the case is that it's unique. Those creatures, Mm. or at least the creatures specifically described by Betty and Barney Hill, are not quite the ones that are referred to in most abduction cases. Well, you note that when I asked Stanton whether or not they had done research to find if there were any other cases where similar creatures were reported, he he sort of sloughed off the question. He really didn't address it head on. Right. But the question is here, they are not the greys. So where do they fit in with the rest of the UFO mystery? It's like it exists in an island by itself. Except for one thing, the missing time. The missing time scenario was repeated in other instances, but those people, and I'm not going to suggest at this point whether those cases are real or not, but for the sake of argument, whatever they are, they don't share much of anything else in terms of the creatures they met. Yes, there are apparent physical examinations, but these are the gray drones as opposed to creatures who were somewhat taller and somewhat more communicative that Betty and Barney Hill met. There are a lot of things like that that came up in in the interview, Gene. And one of the things I found very odd was when I asked about whether or not there had been any sperm extraction from Barney Hill, if you listen to the interview, Stanton says, why do you ask that? Which to me seems like such an obvious question, especially given that we then find out um, that indeed, there were these raised welts or sort of some sort of physical artifacts or remnants of supposedly this cup thing that was placed over his groin. And why would they put something over his groin if not to extract semen? I mean, that seems so obvious to me and was something that I really thought was a relevant question. The way that Stan got defensive about it, I thought was just odd. But here's the thing. I mean, Friedman always talks about, you know, don't don't you know? Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's already made up, and he, he basically claims that this is the issue, with, one of the issues with the noisy, nasty negativists. Well, I, I submit that Stanton was doing this exact same thing, that his mind is made up about this, and that to even ask questions that didn't fit the form of logic that they put forward, he wouldn't even entertain it. And the way that, again, go back and listen to the interview. When I asked this question, he, he just got, like, angry about it. Like, why would you ask that? And it just seems to me like, well, gee, because I want to know what's up with that, because it's an obvious question. Exactly, exactly. And the question also that I asked about the possibility of some kind of government experiment. Consider this. Betty Hill was in the military. Mm-hmm. They live near a military base. Most of their friends are in the military. Right, they said it, right? They, right, they, so, and they we're talking that. about an average, perfectly average, ordinary, middle-class couple, other than the aspect that might have been radical back in the early 60s, an interracial couple. But just forgetting the racial aspect, otherwise a normal, middle-American couple, even though mm-hmm. they lived in New England. 
perfect victims for this kind of experiment. Well, it seems like it's certainly a possibility, and the idea that, well, you know, how would they know they had left the house? And you brought up surveillance, which seems, again, pretty obvious. So why did they dismiss it so readily? Well, because don't bother them with any theories. Their minds are already made up. And How would they know unless they had been trained in police work, detective work, spy work? They wouldn't know necessarily they were being followed. They were probably not paying that much attention on the highway. They could have also been subjected to some kind of post-hypnotic suggestions that caused them to drive a specific route contrary to the standard route on which they traveled. I think it's important that people understand that we're not saying that this is what happened or what didn't happen. Right. It's just it's important to consider all angles and. This is one of those cases that, like Roswell, it's sort of created a mythology around it that to even question it, certainly in terms of the side of the quote-unquote believers, it's blasphemy to even question these things. And But then again, Gene, so many aspects of our society are at the point now where to ask and to inquire about anything in any in-depth way, you're basically just thrown into a pile of skepticism and and this is you know painting the word skeptical or skeptic in a dark light in the same way that in the political discourse the term liberal has been turned into a cuss word and it's pejorative to say that you're a liberal now but the word means freedom and the word skeptic it means you know essentially someone who's thinking but of course a thinker is dangerous in today's society well you know just liberal in the 60s and 70s you were proud to be a liberal you said Mm. i'm a liberal now you have to say you're a progressive and why do you have to say you're a progressive because liberal is a pejorative it's used by the opposition as a means of attack and it shouldn't be and the thing about this particular case though is that we don't know any more about the Barney and Betty Hill case, except maybe for a few details that likely appear in this book about her life and background, than we knew back in the 1960s, except, of course, for the star map, which was discovered around that time. We don't know anything more about it. So I think at this point, we've learned nothing more, and we haven't solved it at all. There's no solution to this particular encounter. So maybe it's time to look at the thing without the blinders on, look at other possibilities, And we're not attacking, again, the Hills or the investigators who said it has to be a spaceship. Maybe it is. Maybe it's an interdimensional creature. But it could also be a government experiment. And the fact that it stands unique in certain factual aspects compared to the others would either mean it's the only true UFO abduction case or that that case and maybe some other cases are all government experiments. And that raises a rather insidious Mm. specter of course but we have to discuss it it's an issue that has to be dealt with i think most of you know that i love radio and so i decide to look for the ultimate receiver for am reception because i want outstanding am reception day and night especially night where it gets difficult so i've discovered that c crane cc radio plus has earned the reputation of having the best am reception which is exactly what c crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio along with its legendary am reception it also has excellent fm reception a weather band tv audio and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. 
So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Jesus and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And a little later, we'll be joined by ghost hunter Linda Zimmerman. But right now, before Linda Zimmerman joins us, we're going to talk about one of the two premier cases in the UFO field, the Betty and Barney Hill case. How did you first come by the case? By reading the John Fuller book? Yeah, actually, that was one of my first, probably my first exposure to it. In my teen years, I had this really sort of extensive library of these books that came about as a result of the experiences that I had and my parents and my brother had in, you know, the weird things that we saw. Obviously, at a certain point, you know, we just started buying books about this. In fact, I, I can tell you that I remember that I started buying these books when I, well, I wasn't even a teenager yet, Gene, I was you know, in Jersey. We moved away from the States when I was 11 years old. By that time, and that would have been, by the way, 1974, I had already amassed a nice little collection of UFO books that in the new apartment in Venezuela, in Caracas, I had them all set up on the windowsill of the bedroom. That was kind of where I kept all of them. And um, yeah, that book was one was among the books I had. And I remember when I got a hold of the first copy I had of the Ari Go book, The Surgeon of the Rusty Knife, realizing that this one same guy had written that and also had written The Incident at Exeter as well. I realized that John G. Fuller was a guy who was doing more than just writing sensationalistic books. He was really looking into this stuff. So, yeah, I had that book. I, I, gee, I want to hazard to say that I remember reading it in 1975, 76, uh, somewhere around there. And um, it really struck me as very odd. And I remember even back then thinking that the fact that they were a multiracial couple was a very curious detail. And it made me wonder even then about this issue of, gee, whether they were seeking publicity or maybe they would specifically not seek publicity because of that. And, and that question lingers for me to this day, the issue of visibility. And the reason I think about it is that 
and you know, and I've brought this up on the show before, and listeners of the show know that this is something I'm always thinking about, which is the effect that our interest in this topic, these topics, I should say, not just UFOs, but all the paranormal stuff, going public with this stuff for you and for me has been a very interesting exercise, and it's taught me a lot about the nature of how people see these things. Because there is this perception that these topics are popular in the mainstream, that it's become maybe a little less problematic discussing them, but I find that that's really not the case at all. And especially, especially if you want to ask difficult questions. At that point, you know, if you can't fit into the believer box or into the debunker box, then everybody has a hard time with you. And again, it, this seems to be this issue of polarization of our society, which is a really dangerous trend, Gene. It's a j- dangerous trend because, you know, reality is not binary. Reality does not fit comfortably into one box or another. It's, it, things really get interesting in the gray areas, I think. And really, when we talk about these topics... Well, as you know, and as our listeners know, uh, there have been times that, well, we've had, what, Stanton on three times, I think? Was this his third appearance? I think so. I think we've had him on one or two times before. We had him on um, himself. We had him on also with Bill Burns, and we may have had him on another time himself again. Right. Well, he's really heavily vested in the ETH, as Mac Tonys would say, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And that's fine, and it's very interesting um, in that, yes, there are a number of cases where there definitely seems to be an indication that the beings want us to think this, and I think that's really the key. We're, we're led to believe this, whether or not it's actually accurate. And um, I sort of wish that Stan would be a little more open-minded about potential explanations for this. I think this is one area where Jacques Vallée was definitely on to the right sort of a um, he was on to the right idea, and I really wish we could have him on. You know, we've had people on the forums mention that they would love to see us get an interview with him. It's not been a fruitful... <laughs> we haven't had much success trying to reach Dr. Valet. Apparently, he really doesn't want to talk about these things publicly anymore, which is, which is unfortunate. And, we, you know, we found the same thing when I told you last year that we would get to John Keel on the show. Well, that didn't come to happen either. He really was not was not interested. He was going through some health issues as well. That's right, but he, but he doesn't do any yeah. shows anymore. Yeah, which is which is sad. Obviously, he has a lot of interesting stuff. But, you know, I, I really do wish Frieden was more open-minded. Perhaps a little less obviously interested in pushing books so hard. And I have to mention this, that it seemed like a lot of the stuff we were asking, there wasn't, there was kind of an overt thing going on where, oh, well, you know, it's in the book. And when we asked about the results of that report of Betty Hill's dress, both of them told us, well, you have to go look at the stuff in the book. We don't really know what these things mean, the results of the tests. And that's uh, a little disingenuous it's as far like as I'm concerned. telling us, well, we're not going to give you even a summary of it, which yeah. they could have done. They could have gone and said, okay, well, here's a summary of what we say in the book, and then still legitimately say, we will have more information in the book, the more well, more sure. details, that's fine. But to give nothing, well, not a single iota of information, except to say there were anomalous aspects to it, but it's in the book, it's in the book, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I'm not impressed by that kind of behavior. And, you know, I know that I think the first time we had Friedman on where he said, you know, hey, I'm a performer. I'm a Leo. I like performing. Okay, that's fine. Hey, you and I like performing, too. And any of my closest friends will confirm that. 
when they speak to me on the phone, they never know what voice or character they're going to get. Certainly, That's right. That or, times. or what music you will play in the background, <laughs> or whether you will even just hang up the phone after talking <laughs> in some kind of weird fashion. Oh, I, man. You know, it's like. If I and if I give you a name or a character, you'll jump into that character. Yeah, and, and that's I won't fine. Do, I won't say, "Hey, be Yoda." That's ridiculous. You're not going to be Yoda. Ah, excuse I me. Fun of me, will you? <laughs> no. Well, the thing is that we like being on air. That's the reason we're on here. We're certainly not doing it for the big cash. So we like talking. We like get, getting in front of audiences. I've gotten up in front of audiences for years doing Photoshop seminars and multimedia seminars. I mean, I've spoken to. A thousand fifteen hundred people at a time and and had great fun doing it, so yeah, I like that stuff as well. We both like attention, but i don 't think that 's the main reason that we 're here doing this I, I I know speaking for myself, this is cheap therapy. I want to talk to people about these topics, maybe not even with the idea that we 're going to get any closer to real understanding. That might simply not be possible, Gene, ultimately. But it feels good to talk about it on a certain level. It feels good you know, to have someone like Richard Dolan on and to talk to him about this stuff. It feels good to have Bruce McAbee on and to talk to him about photographic issues. There was some feedback on the forums that maybe people thought we were getting a little geeky. But it's like, well, yeah, this guy is a high-end image processing analyst and researcher. And nobody and, asks him the geek questions. Well, yeah. I mean, just what came out in terms of his research into the quote-unquote orbs phenomenon, which... I mean, I just I find sort of ridiculous, except for certain chunks of video that I've linked to on our forums. You know, there's that stuff from the, the Black Forest, which is really just amazing. But for the most part, every orb photo I've seen is it's just silly. And that, you know, Bruce gets on the air and we bring this up with him and we have the, the little discussion that for my money, was reason alone to listen to that interview. It's good to talk like this because, you know, as certainly I've discovered, bringing these topics up in mixed company or with friends that don't know you're into this might be a really great way to never speak to that friend again. Yes, well, I think people have known me because of the fact that I've been publicly interested in UFOs for so many years, except for this period of time I got out of the subject between the late 80s and until we started this show. So we're talking about maybe 15, 16 years. People knew what I was all about, even when I was working in commercial radio in the early years, in the 70s. People knew about my interests, so they didn't bother me about it. They indulged me. They accepted it as one of my eccentricities. And as long as I delivered the ratings, as long as I behaved myself, they sent me a paycheck every week or two, and we were happy. And that's how it went. Speaking Mm. of being happy, we haven't talked about ghosts for such a long time because there's so much going on in the UFO field. Well, no. Wait a minute. What do you mean we haven't talked about them in such a long time? What about Jeff Belanger from GhostVillage.com? Right. Well, exactly. But that's like few and far between. What are you drinking, man? What are you drinking? I'm drinking. Yes. But that's a while back. Ghost juice, man. Sure, but that's back in June. That's back in June. June 10th. Back in June? Well, all right. Ghostvillage.com. And how many ghost shows do we do a year? We don't do enough. That's true. So we've brought on the ghost hunter herself, Linda Zimmerman. And she'll be coming up next on the Paracast. I'm repeating we're not in Kansas anymore. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. 
host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. So, Linda, since the last time we had you on, which I guess would have been uh, last October or so, have there been any interesting new cases you've run into that uh, you find particularly compelling? Uh, yes, I really, um, I've, I've been busy, and there's been some cases that have drawn me back several times that I'm working on now. One in particular was the location of a, a man who committed suicide, and what happened was when a new family moved in, the little son, few years old, knew nothing about the house, started talking about a man who he was walking around with a gun who was asking for uh, the boy to shoot him. Hmm. And so he told his parents, and they, he described the man. He even correctly gave the man's name. It, it was quite remarkable. And I went to investigate, and I, I got the brilliant idea of sitting on the suicide spot and seeing if I could communicate, and uh, it became really emotional. It was it was very traumatic. It was like I just felt what this poor guy had felt. You know, he was very ill and drove him to suicide. And I, I got all kinds of different bits and pieces. And it turns out another remarkable twist. Just a short time ago, the man's granddaughter contacted me because she heard I was investigating the case. And she was able to confirm some of the things I had sensed, I guess you could call it. And, you know, I don't go in these things as a psychic by any stretch, but... You know, you can't help getting certain impressions in places like this. And I guess when you do it long enough, you, you do get some sense of what's, you know, what's happening with, the, with these spirits. So you think that the longer that you do this kind of research, you pick up some sort of psychic sensitivity? It seems to be. I think everyone has psychic ability. It's just a matter of, you know, not messing it up with bad habits and, and also paying attention to it. And, you know, doing this year after year, it gets to the point where, you know, you can walk into a place pretty much and get a sense. Not always. I don't have the clarity of, of you know, these real psychics who come up with names and dates and things like that. Mm -hmm. But at least uh, for me, on an emotional level, I think that's where my strong point is. You can you can get a sense of whether things are negative or, or happy or not always, but it seems to over the years ha has definitely developed. Now, this was a case that you had looked into before and were revisiting? Uh, this was a, uh, this one I had the, my uh, was on my first visit that I had it, had this experience, but I had spoken to the owners several times before, and mm -hmm. on the first visit, and I have been back subsequently, and and do plan on going back again, and in fact I am going to 
another house just down the same street where a very similar a similar situation where another man had committed suicide and people see this man in the house now so um what are the chances two houses on the same street with a similar you know a similar case i will not be sitting on the suicide spot this time <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh i do i do want to investigate this and a, a local psychic had said that you know this whole this whole area of this one town seems to have something wrong with it or or at least be a paranormal gray spot if you want to call it that what what town is this that we're talking about is this port jervis yes yes it is hmm. how did you get that uh i'm using my psychic abilities no actually i'm, I'm reading your blog page so oh i was just gonna say you're good <laughs> <laughs> not quite no no well not in that way at least um <laughs> Well, it's really interesting because you're known primarily, Linda, for the research work that you've done about hauntings in the New York metropolitan area. Certainly, New York State seems to be high on your list of uh, of your specialties. So what what is it about this area? I mean, you just said that there was a psychic that, that said that this certain area of Port Jervis seems to lend itself to this. What are What are your theories about that? Is there something in the um, electromagnetic field of these areas that facilitates this? I mean, is it just because these places have a long amount of history? I think it might be both. Uh, clearly, there's a lot of history here and a lot of violent history. And, I, you know, that's a good point with maybe there's something about the natural geology or the Earth's magnetic fields in this particular area. I know someone had said they were doing some research about a mysterious cave in the Port Jervis uh, area, and they were talking about the different geomagnetic lines that, uh, you know, the fields seem to be particularly strong in these in this area. And I've heard that with different things. So maybe it's a combination of the Earth, you know, energy combined with the long human history in this in this particular area. But it is. I, I think I said this last time. I'm. I'm just amazed at how concentrated it really is in this particular tri-state area, Hudson Valley in particular. Well, one would think that indeed, because there is such a long history to the area, and as you mentioned, there's been you know, a lot of violence around here, that it would lend itself to that. And I also know that um, in a few, couple of weeks, or maybe about a week from when the show airs, the um, Gettysburg event, I think called Ghost World, is happening and there seems to be a huge amount of ghost activity in Gettysburg for what I would imagine are fairly obvious reasons the, immen the immense amount of life that was lost there have you done any research into that particular area Linda? Yes I did at first uh, I'm a Civil War buff so at first I was visiting Gettysburg strictly as a historian and you know I would lecture about the Civil War and I had a few incidents that happened to me and I was like wow this is you know this was long before I got into a ghost investigation I was like wow there's some there's some strange things going on in Gettysburg so when I actually started researching haunted locations you know I did go back and it's everywhere it's just everywhere and and as you said it's for obvious reasons people lost their lives were horribly wounded were just emotionally scarred and then almost immediately people came back and started concentrating their own emotional energy on this location. You know, veterans would come back year after year, and it, it became like a pilgrimage spot. 
So I, I describe Gettysburg almost like an open-air cathedral. If you've ever been to the cathedrals mm. in, in Europe, you walk in and there's a, you know, whether you're a believer or not, or religious or not, there's a spiritual intensity in these places. You know, some of them have 800 years of, of you know, spiritual devotion in these buildings. And, and you can feel that, at least I think so, on Gettysburg and some of these other battlefields where people have just spent the last hundred or so years, you know, praying, concentrating, uh, re- you know, you have all these reenactors reliving these situations over and over again. So I think it's a combination of the actual event there and then what people have subsequently brought to it, you know, for generations afterwards. Have you seen that footage that's uh, floating around? I've seen it on the web in a few places that um, some people filmed down in Gettysburg of these ghostly figures sort of walking up in the trees. And you can pretty clearly see that they're people. And it would appear like they're walking what would be a good seven or eight feet above ground level, up in the leaves of these trees. Have you seen this footage, Linda? No, I haven't. There's something recent? Uh, no, this is from a few years ago. I'll tell you what, I'll, um, I'll find the link and send it to you. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have ghost hunter Linda Zimmerman with us. And no, she's not Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) But we like her anyway. Definitely. And (laughs) You silly man, you. Hey, you know, and speaking of new cases, I just want to mention, I was looking at a couple of things over on your blog, Ghost Investigator, and you have an article here about a place. Is this related to ghost hunting or is it strictly just to help a place? And that's the Rolling Hills. Oh, right, right. The the Rolling Um, Hills Preservation Society. I might as well mention that either way because it is a charitable thing and we are certainly charitable here. Right. That Yeah, I had written about the place. I had been there. uh, That was in my last book. And it's a shame that they might actually lose it because it's an incredible place for people to go and investigate. So I'm hoping they can save it. Very, very haunted old asylum. Well, this is the place where you had that um, thing happen in the hallway? Yes, yes, that's the one. Oh, man. Well, that's an interesting, brings up an interesting question, Linda. So let's say you have a place like this where there definitely seems to be something going on. Then a crew comes in, tears the place down and let's say builds homes or builds a new type of structure there, does the haunting activity tend to continue in a place like that, or does that sort of stop it off? It it can. I mean, just altering the physical structure can change Mm -hmm. it. Tearing it down can change it. But it also 
can linger and, and carry on into the next structure. And I have a perfect example of that where it was a an old uh, tomato sauce factory uh, in the turn of the uh, 19th century, and a boiler exploded and killed the owner, and his ghost was seen there, you know, for a 100 years. And a few years ago, they tore the factory down, built a few new houses on top of it, mm-hmm. and wouldn't you know, a few months after moving in, the owner called me and started saying about all these strange things that were happening in their house. You know, she tells me the town, and, you know, a little little bell went off, and I said, uh, it wouldn't happen to be such and such a street. She's like, how do you know that? <laughs> I said, well, because I investigated the factory that was, you know, there previously, and she did not know any of the history of it. So here was a prime example where I investigated the original structure. It was torn down, houses were built, and the same the same uh, activity was taking place. So fascinating for me, unfortunate for her, but it, clearly if they tear, tear down a place as haunted as, as Rolling Hills and, I don't know, put up condos or something, I, I think the homeowners mm. are doomed. Yeah, I guess it goes back to that. Gene uh, is the one who usually does this, but I'll do it today. It goes back to that thing portrayed in the original Poltergeist movie um, with the Indian burial grounds. And of course, that brings up a whole other question in that are these manifestations potentially psychological projections? And, and when I say that, maybe not even of the people who are present at the moment, but you know, we're, we seem to have in the study of these experiences manifestations, apparitions that don't seem aware of either A, their surroundings, or B, the fact that there are people watching them, living people watching them. Versus something very different, which is when you have a manifestation that is attempting to communicate or interact with the living beings in the environment. In your research, Linda, what seems to be the characteristics that differentiate these two things? What have you come up with that seems to put these types of manifestations into one category or the other? I think you you hit it there, the amount of interaction, um, whether or not the haunting seems to be a conscious one where they're just as aware of you as you are of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's the ones that I I think I usually refer to them as like a tape loop ghost, where it's it's like an imprint. It's like a movie being replayed again and again, and it, it has nothing to do with the people there, and, you know, there's no interaction whatsoever. So, yeah, I, I don't know if some of them are just some kind of psychic imprint, like, um, uh, you know, an energetic photograph or movie imprinted on a location, and there may be no actual spirits behind it. That's a possibility. And then on the other extreme, there are things that are, you know, except for the fact of being dead, they just interact like regular human beings. You know, they try to communicate, they try to interfere, or, you know, at least let them let your their presence be known and uh, maybe try to get a message through. Do you so think this, they know that they are dead? Yes. And I, I, I would say, you know, especially in the suicide case, um, I think he clearly knows he's dead and regrets having taken that measure, but he was in such terrible shape he couldn't go on. So I think that's why he is still there. 
he knew it was wrong or he, he he in his belief system was learned that such a thing was wrong but he couldn't go on he couldn't make the people around him suffer so he took his own life and on a you know it's still a regret that he had to to do that and clearly he's he's trying to interact and you know it's it is a very very disturbing situation and i think he's aware of it and that's why he's still there just to go back a little bit david did you tell linda about this experience that you had in florida with your friend some years back i don't think certainly i don't think we brought it up on the first time we had linda on the show and um, i don't think i'd ever communicated an email to her what bill and i had seen but linda down in southern florida in fort lauderdale in the late 90s i uh, saw with a very close friend of mine an extremely odd uh, physically manifested apparition solid and we we watched it was a girl it was a female we watched her for 10 15 minutes we were sitting very close to her in fact we we saw her in the courtyard of this condo where uh, my friend Bill had a place and where my grandmother lived and my parents ended up living, a place I had a long history with. And uh, we saw this physical manifestation of this being look like a girl. Um, we did a whole episode of the Paracast on this, and what I remember specifically about her was that she seemed to emanate sadness. There was this uh, huh. terrible sadness coming out of her. We, we, we sat at a very close proximity to her, probably about 12 feet away. It was still daylight out. And while we could see her very clearly, the area of her eyes and her mouth, sort of all of the recessed parts of her face, were in perpetual shadow. We could not see her eyes. We could not see her mouth. And you could see the tip of her nose, uh, her cheekbones, her forehead, her chin, but her her eyes just weren't there. And, um, yeah, and uh, at one point she got up. She was sitting down at this table and... It's very weird. I and mean, we had seen her walking originally, and her feet were moving relatively slowly compared to the speed that she was gliding across the, the ground. We were sitting away. We, we ended up following her, sitting about 12 feet away from her. We were watching her, and, and she didn't seem to acknowledge our presence until she got up, looked right at us, which, you know, even I remember it now, and it just makes my skin sort of crawl. And, um,. Yeah, no, it was really messed up. She she turned around, started walking away, and uh, in a space of about 10 feet, we watched her dematerialize right in front of us. Now, now the thing about this, and, and it actually tied, dovetails really well into what I was where I was going with this before, I almost had the sense that we were seeing not a physical manifestation of an individual, but it's almost as if we were seeing, as weird as this may sound, a solid manifestation of an emotion. At least that's what I came away from this experience with, was that this was not a, an actual person. It was it was a collection of emotions that manifested physically for some reason and then basically vanished. And so I'm wondering, in this differentiation between beings that attempt to interact with people in an environment versus the reverberations, the psychic echo or the tape loop, as you've referred to, is there something in your investigation that indicates that one type of manifestation is caused by, let's say, a certain type of event? 
you know, if we have a violent death, does that mean that we then have someone who is now attempting to find reasons for their death or to find meaning in it by interacting with living people? When we have the what, what you describe as the tape loop, is that something where there's maybe less emotional energy wrapped up in the manifestation? H- have you uncovered anything that seems to indicate where these things lean to in terms of sourcing? It's a it's a wonderful question. Perhaps what you saw, like you said, you felt the emotion of it, and maybe mm-hmm. it appeared to you as a sad little girl because that would resonate with you. That, you know, as opposed to, I don't know, a, a six-foot strong-looking guy, that wouldn't cause, cause sadness to you. So maybe where there is this heavy residue of emotion and people do see some kind of form, it would be a form that would trigger that kind of emotion for them. I I think that's entirely possible. Even multiple witnesses in a case where they're both seeing the same thing? Um, That might be pushing it a little. As you're telling the story, I still would tend to think it had something to do with a little girl and some sad situation. You know, do you know the history of that location at all? Had anything happened to a, a child there? N- not really. She was actually a, a young adult. She would have been in her oh, okay. late teens, early 20s. And oh, um, I- yeah, yeah. And she was actually dressed in clothes that seemed to indicate late 60s, early 70s. But what I can tell you is that where that condo complex was had basically been empty land for a long time, as far as I know, which, of course, made me think maybe this was a murder victim. But um, it sounds like you're starting almost to sound like a bit of a law and order episode. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney, and now David's going to come down on me for mentioning a TV show. Okay. No, I'll just let you do what you're going to do. That's right, because there's no hope for me. Uh, People gave up on me a long time ago. My wife has known me for over 30 years, and she said, you know, let him do what he's going to do. He's hopeless. Forget about it. Linda Zimmerman, the ghost hunter, joins us, and we're talking about David's experience with his friend that was recited in an episode of the Powercast some months back, and we're just kind of look at things that happen. As you say, maybe it could have been a murder that occurred on that land before the building had been made. And when was the building constructed, or the Uh, the complex? The complex would have been built in, I want to say, the late 70s, early 80s, probably late 70s is when it actually got built up, though. Actually, yeah, where that building was, that was in the earliest part of the, the complex. So, yeah, probably late 70s, very early 80s is when I'll guess it would have... No, actually, late 70s is probably accurate. Honestly, at the time, I was not as proactive as I am now about looking into my own paranormal experiences. They just sort of happened to me. So I can't say that I did any huge amount of research after the fact to find out if there had been some unsolved murder case where uh, you know a girl had gone missing and maybe in that area. 
What I can tell you, though, is that that whole part of Florida was very intensively Native American, and in a lot of those pockets around Fort Lauderdale and West Fort Lauderdale, I mean, there is a lot of Indian burial grounds there. So I'm not sure if that plays into it or not. Linda, here in the New York area, I'm guessing there are a lot of Indian burial grounds as well, right? Yes. Yes, there are. And, you know, a lot of people think their house must be buried on, you know, must be built on an Indian burial ground. But there's actually a local case I did work on where they did unearth all kinds of Indian artifacts. And it was uh, Indian land. You know, there was a settlement and burial ground there. And mm-hmm. they do have an enormous amount of activity in, in this house. So there you know, there are genuine cases, and there was also a case in New Jersey where a man was like an amateur archaeologist, and he would go dig up Indian burial ground sites and bring bones home. You know, all hell kind of broke loose with that, so uh, don't don't try this at home. <laughs> you know, definitely leave the dead buried. Why Native American burial grounds should have this kind of energy to them, I, I don't know, but I, I, I certainly wouldn't want any kind of structure built on any kind of grave site. Well, I live about just a few minutes from Indian property. Of course, they use it for gambling here in Arizona. <laughs> They've monetized it, the tribes, so they make a lot of money from it. But right. I wonder if there aren't burial grounds on all those backwoods places out there. And I haven't looked, you know, I'm not interested in taking home any spirits or causing any problems, you know. So if there are any ghosts listening to this show, by the way, I don't want to talk to you guys, you know, just forget about it. Don't worry about it. I'm not here to be completely, as they say, blasphemous to such things. But seriously, I would think that where I am now, there probably are lots of burial grounds that one could explore and maybe find legends. I'm I'm sure, you know, and, and even... In colonial times, a lot of uh, old cemeteries that maybe were abandoned and derelict, at least in our area, if uh, I think if a cemetery has been abandoned for 100 years or more, you can plow it over and build right o- over it. And that has happened. Uh, I've spoken to builders. They said, oh, yeah, you know, we just put that housing development on top of such and such a cemetery because nobody used it anymore, which is a shame that these things aren't preserved. But uh, you're in a densely populated area and land's expensive. And then, of course, I'm sure they're not telling the prospective buyers that they're buying a home on a former cemetery. So what do they do? They just remove the headstones? I mean, they rem- yes, yes, they'll remove the headstones and build on top of it. Occasionally they'll just dig up the bodies and put them somewhere else. It sounds like the movie Poltergeist. Exactly. I mean, they didn't they didn't make up that idea. That's you know, that's uh that's what happens because I know I was doing some historical research years ago and I was looking for somebody's grave and they said, "Oh, that cemetery is gone." Like, what do you mean? What, gone? How, how, how can a cemetery disappear? And they said, oh, well, builders came in and built on top of it because it was an old cemetery no one was using any longer. So, you know, you never know what what your house has been built on. And like you said, in the case with this girl, and specifically you're, you're describing her, even her clothes, I, I think mm-hmm. that, that, I think to me then, now that you've said that, indicates more, yeah, that was a specific 
spirit trying to get across a very specific message. I'm with this woman during this time period. You know, you felt the sadness. So I'd be fascinated to see if you could find out any more about that location. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me just tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. The ghost hunter herself, Linda Zimmerman, joins us, and we're talking about, to use the horrible pun, her favorite haunts, but a few of the experiences that David and I are aware of. But, you know, looking back into this ghost issue and the ghost enigma, and that is that there are supposedly psychic or window areas around the world where all sorts of things happening. All sorts of things happen within those areas, within those regions, such as ghost reports, poltergeists, strange animals, UFOs. Are they all related? Are you asking me? <laughs> You're here. Um, <laughs> I don't think he's asking me. Yeah. I never asked David anything, I'll tell you right now. Never. There, there do seem to be areas where there all are all kinds of activity. Again, I, I would have to think it has something to do with the natural earth energy that helps whatever it is manifest or draws certain things to it. When I first, uh, I think we might have spoken about this before, when I, when someone first approached me about a connection between UFOs and ghosts, I'm like, what, what are you crazy? What is, what does one have to do with the other? But over the years, I have heard of locations that have a, you know, different types of paranormal activity and also have UFO sightings, which, you know, maybe it's not alien craft, but it is some kind of paranormal activity that people think, you know, must be something from outer space, but maybe it's just some kind of lights or energy or interdimensional who knows what but you're right there there are these places that have all kinds of seemingly unrelated activity well when we talk about places that have a long historical background certainly um, in terms of the continental united states besides the native american presence and whatever other peoples were here predating them um certainly this is a fairly young country, and uh, one has to assume that if we are going to look for manifestations that have been created over time 
that we would look to older places. I mean, certainly England has a very rich and long history of hauntings. But if we extrapolate along that same idea, Linda, um, do you know of the situation of hauntings, for example, in a place like Jerusalem? No, I, I don't, but uh, another very ancient country, this was this was a wild thing. I called a customer service about my computer router and, of course, got someone in India. And <laughs> That's normal, by the way. Just Now, it's either going to be India, Bangalore, New Delhi, or Philippines. Mm. So... So anyway, he's checking out uh, my problem and sees I have this ghost investigator site. Well, the next hour and a half, he's telling me all these ghost stories from his town and village and everyone else he knows. You know, and, you know, you just said something which I'd like to really push because I want to talk about it further. And that is that when we talk to somebody with a foreign accent and they're in customer support and not all the people you get. English speaking or non-English, whatever, are knowledgeable. Sometimes you get some really nice people. And when you talk to them and you learn to know them a little bit, you could really find some interesting things out about them. Definitely. Oh, it, it was it was fascinating. We never we never fixed my router, but uh, who cares some... at this point, right? <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. Like, like there's a waiter, head waiter at the local Indian restaurant in the neighborhood. He's a big UFO fan. I always give him UFO books to read, and he gives me free liquid refreshments. It's just you know mango mango lassi, which is one of the Indian. Oh, mango lassi is one of my favorites. Of course, no, not not anything alcoholic. But that's it. You know, you find if you talk to people. And just treat them as people. You can learn some amazing things. Absolutely. And these more ancient, older countries, they're not so hung up and and closed-minded because, you know, in the case of ghosts, at least, it's like a given there. That's right, sure. They have... So many haunted locations, and there—it's it, you know—you—you—you you, you have a thousand years worth of hauntings. They're used to it. All right, so you've touched upon a very important topic, Linda, which is cultural awareness and a cultural predisposition towards belief in these things. Do you feel that that colors the objectivity of certain episodes overseas? If you have a, a population that's very comfortable with this idea. Does it mean that they're psychologically more open to this, and does that in turn create more incidents of this type? I think it's a double-edged sword because speaking to this man and a a couple of other uh, people from India, they very much believe in it. They're very open, so they do pay attention to things when they happen. But on the other hand, there's a great fear behind it. And they will have these ceremonies to, I have actually taken part in the ceremony where they bring in a priest to try to, in case somebody's buried under the house or there's a, you know, some kind of spirits, they, before they'll even move into a place, they want to clear it of any potential spirits. And so there's, there's an awareness and an appreciation, but there's also a fear because they believe that these things can be harmful and adversely affect them. So it, it as I was saying, it, it brings it brings both. It brings the awareness, but you know, when you do believe and you know these things are happening, people are just a lot of people are just not comfortable with spirits in their house. Well, for I guess what would be obvious reasons, I've I've read reports where people get indeed not only comfortable with these things, but really like having them around, and that's always made me wonder: How do you like something that you don't even 
even well you don't even know what it is and can you actually trust that and that sort of leads us down another line of discussion which is that okay we've talked about manifestations that are sort of these echoes or loops then we have manifestations that seem to be deceased humans that are trying to communicate with us but then it veers off into a much darker place where we have these manifestations that seem as if they're not human, as if they're some sort of negative energy. I mean, often we hear the term demonic. What do you think those sorts of episodes actually really consist of? I mean, are there demons and are they trying to control us? Oh, boy. I really haven't delved into the demonic aspects of this. Could it be possible? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I do believe in, in good and evil. So um, it, it, there was one case I actually declined to investigate because it, boy, it sounded like something, you know, out of the exorcist. And I said, you know what? Contact your local priest. This is This is not for me. That was only one case over all the years. But... Is it possible? I, I, I would think so. But um, nothing I really want to, I am uh, emotionally <laughs> equipped to deal with, I don't think. But you're sort of acknowledging then that this is, I mean, even the way that you just spoke about it, it sounds like it's something that you find intimidating. I mean, that you don't even want to get near it. Let's say there was the potential of there being a genuine haunting of some sort but it has this negative energy associated with it. It sounds to me like there's a safety mechanism in you that's saying, oh, no, keep that away. Before we find out why, before we find out why we're out of our time for our first hour of the PowerCast, and we'll be back in just a moment with more with Linda Zimmerman, the ghost hunter on the PowerCast. Welcome back to the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We're back on the PowerCast with Linda Zimmerman, the ghost hunter, and she was asked a very interesting, significant question by David, and should we pursue that right now? Yeah, I think the term intimidating is probably appropriate. Um, as I was saying, I, I can be very emotionally affected at these locations, like the suicide place, I, for days. It was It was at least two days that... I still felt the the sad energy of that, and it, it affected me. It affected my personality. You know, I was definitely down for a couple of days. And some of these places where there are intensely negative hauntings, it, it, it can affect you. And I know of some cases where people who live in these places, their their personalities are changed. You know, there was even a case locally where someone might have committed suicide as a result. So... I am aware that these can harm you, maybe only psychologically, but that's, you know, that's that's sufficient. So you, you have to use caution. I know so many groups are springing up now and, you know, call themselves ghost hunters, and they just go blundering into these situations thinks, thinking it's all going to be fun and games, and it isn't. There can be very negative things, and if you're not careful, it, it can harm you, maybe not physically, but emotionally and psychologically. Hmm. I suppose something I don't do very often, but I'll, I'll bring up now because in the context of this discussion, last year, about a year and two months ago, I went through a situation where uh, because of the Paracast, my interest in these topics, I had tried to help out someone in New York City who had posted an ad on a very popular um, website called Craigslist. 
that they were living in an apartment in New York City in some old house, some old brownstone of some sort, and um, they were seeing and experiencing and hearing these really odd voices and music, and they were seeing... It was a it was a girl in her twenties. She claimed that she was seeing these weird lights that would shine under her door at night. Make a long story short, I got in touch with this person and uh, wrote her saying that I I didn't know if I could help or not. That I would try. We spoke twice on the phone, and while we spoke, I heard through the phone these voices and these noises. This weird like almost like carnival music playing and these really crazy sounds that, I mean, part of me thought, all right, maybe this person's pulling my leg and she's got some tape recorder, you know, she's playing these things. But I have to tell you that she was really scared. She seemed absolutely terrified. And I hear these things over the phone. And after the first time I spoke to her and I just, I had to get off the phone because I started shaking uncontrollably i had to get into bed i was i was i had such a terrible reaction to this i mean i really felt ill i should mention that david called me that evening and i will confirm he was really shaken up i've never hear him sound like that before never heard him sound like that it, it was it was really bad and um and that's just from a phone call that was just from a phone call, and she spoke to me the next evening after that, and it started up again, and I couldn't talk to her anymore. I said, look, I'd love to be able to help you out. I'm not sure what to do, but what I do know is that I don't think I can talk to you anymore. And she was really disturbed by this. I mean, I got some emails from her afterwards saying, you know, please help me out. I'm really scared. The second night, the same thing happened. I got off the phone with her after hearing this stuff. And I just felt physically ill. And I was literally laying in bed, shivering, shaking. My girlfriend said to me, light some candles, get some light in there, get some white light, you know, focus on this. And I know some of our listeners are going to say or think, hey, that sounds really new agey. What's wrong with David? But the fact of the matter is that those things actually helped me out. I Both evenings I lit some candles and uh, I sort of focused and concentrated and, and I felt better after a while. But I never got back in touch with her. I never followed up with her. I don't know what happened to her ultimately. But I do know that just being exposed to this, and, you know, I had the typical macho thing where I'm going to help her out. I've got a paranormal show. I can I can do something. There's somebody I can call. Well, after the second phone call, the, the mere thought of hearing these things over the phone again, I just couldn't deal with it. So, the, of course, the question is, was that just psychological manipulation on her part of my emotions it's a possibility i mean i can't discount that but what i do know is that i've never really had that kind of a reaction to sounds over the phone and when i was hearing these things there was just something wrong there there was um almost a sense that i was hearing something that wasn't just a straight sound wave. There was a presence to it that, I mean, I said to her, you're saying these things are coming from like the walls? She said, well, yeah, they don't really seem to be coming from anywhere in particular. She said they came from above, like almost like the ceiling. And um, it sounded like, to me, it's almost like as if they were in the room with me. I mean, there was... There was a weird thing about that. It wasn't just that I was hearing it over the phone. It was almost like I heard some resonance, these sounds, like in my environment while I was on the phone with her. And that really scared 
me in, in a way that I haven't really been scared like that, except for one other time in my life. That was it. Just it just blew my mind, and I couldn't speak to her anymore, and I never followed up. Well, that, so, that was a smart thing to do because I mean, your intuition or your gut feel, whatever you want to call it, was warning you. I mean, you were getting physically ill, and you have to respect that. And that's mm-hmm. that's what I try to tell people: if you're in a situation and you feel in, you know, something's telling you get out, get out, because you're probably far more sensitive to these things than you will not, you know, than most people understand. And you did the right thing. Because can you imagine if you had actually gone to this location, what it might have done Ooh. to you? No, I, I, you know what? That was never on the table. I'll tell you, I, 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 and part of me, of course, was really curious and thought, gee, this would be a great opportunity to actually witness something like that firsthand. But um, after that second phone call, certainly, there was just no way. I just felt like I didn't have the right kind of preparation or mental attitude about this. And, and that, of course, brings up an important point, Linda, in that we see shows like Ghost Hunter, where these guys are going after this stuff. But then we see, like, on the show Ghost Hunters, there's one of their investigators, Brian, who just gets scared and runs from these things. I mean, it, and I think to myself, what kind of an investigator is this? It's just a shtick, maybe, for the TV show. Yeah, um, you know, you. I don't know what you can uh, believe is, is reality and, you know... What is the TV show part of that? But yeah, there's a couple of and that other one from England where the woman is constantly screaming and <laughs> you know you're not going to get real valid evidence if you're always screaming and running. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the 
We want valid evidence on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, the ghost hunter. Linda Zimmerman joins us, and we're talking about spiritual things and not-so-spiritual things. So do you look at these evil forces as being the classic concept of God versus the devil, or what? I don't. I don't know that I have a, um, you know, the standard Christian outlook at that. You know, God versus the devil. I look at it at a much more basic level of good versus evil, and you know, people can be good and evil uh, clearly. And um, I think on the other side there are the same forces of, of good and evil, and you you know you can call them angels, demons, what, whatever, whatever your cultural background you know describes them. But uh, you know it really really uh, disturbs me when I hear people say, oh, there is no such thing as good and evil. I think they're really missing the boat there, and I, I think that kind of attitude toward life they're they're not going to be making the right decisions Uh, i think it's important to acknowledge it exists and deal with it in your own life as as well well here's a question about that though and it's something i've been thinking a lot about lately where you're saying good versus evil it seems to me like so much of what is human perception of our reality is binary good versus evil black versus white us versus them, liberal versus conservative, Democrat versus Republican. I sometimes wonder if this binary way of seeing reality, of categorizing reality, might be nothing more than a a manifestation of the binary aspect of the brain. And it, it seems like, you know, you have these two hemispheres in the brain that cooperate with one in, with one another they there's overlap but really you have two distinct processors that are that are connected but and, you know and we see the world through two eyes we manipulate the world through two hands we hear the world through two ears and a lot of that is physiologically about triangulation being able to see depth or being able to locate sounds around us you know basically two ears is what allows us to give placement you know a spatial placement to the sourcing of sounds but it's almost as if everything about humans ends up being this binary way of seeing the world and when we talk about good and evil i've always wondered about point of view i mean and I had this discussion with my wonderful girlfriend, Susan, this weekend. Hi, Susie. Where, you know, there's this thing about, you know, good versus evil. And, and I said to her, well, you know what? From the point of view of most animals on this planet, certain, certainly any fish that you want to choose, humans would be absolutely evil in every way because we do nothing but destroy their world, destroy them with what appears to be absolute impunity. So how do we qualify this notion of good versus evil. We're talking about things that are good for us to perpetuate a lifestyle that's destructive or think when we talk about something that's evil, if a shark kills a human in the water and eats it, is that shark evil? Uh, that, that shark's just surviving, but, um, well, see, I have a different take on this because I've been a vegetarian for about 30 years and I will not harm a fish or, or any other living creature because I won't kill to survive. And I, you know, we cert- human beings certainly don't need to kill animals to survive at this point in history. I think we're getting off on a maybe a different topic, but I, <laughs> on the other hand, it isn't because I think it's all. We're, I think we're getting into morality, 
Um, mm-hmm. Sure. My sense, my sense of morality is that it is wrong to destroy and kill these. I mean, and, and so many people do it for fun. I mean, yeah. don't get me started on on hunting. Uh, <laughs> I mean, to kill. And, well, of course, and, if we send the vice president out, he just shoots people, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, so yeah, I think that is an. I don't want to say evil, but it's certainly not a life-affirming, positively moral trait in humans that they find killing and and maiming animals a sport, uh, as fun. So, yeah, that fish who's got that, uh, you know barbed hook in his mouth, he has every right to see that as an evil act. I guess we're getting a little far afield, but you brought it up, so I have No, no, no. Yeah, I don't think it's far afield at all. I think that in the human experience, everything is colored by context, perception, and self-interest. And in the case of, you know, the animal looking at the human that's about to, to consume it, yeah, I think at that point, the human is indeed evil from the point of view of that creature. Of course, you know, we could then go into even a sort of a deeper, wackier place, which is, gee, we, you know, okay, you don't eat animals, but you eat plants. Do plants scream when you kill them? There are people who will tell you, yes, they've been able to identify and, and quantify um, the sound of a plant dying as it yields its life up for human consumption. Especially carrots. Carrots? Actually. Sure. Really? Well, I don't really care for carrots, but, uh, well, I, <laughs> fruit, fruit I, I didn't know I was starting this, but I just uh, threw that yeah. in. Well, uh, to take it one step, fruit, fruits and vegetables are, they're designed to be eaten, so you're not killing the plant. But I, I see what you're saying, you know, if you rip a carrot out of the ground and eat it. But I guess then, you know, you do you do have to survive. But Well, well then what about all the violence and bugs by the cartoons then? Because well, he's always no, ripping no, carrots. No, stop it. Stop. Let's, don't take this down such a silly place. Well, not but here. Let me paint the context for it in, in terms of the, the discussion we were having. So let's say we have these negative entities and they interact with humans. And let's say for a moment, just for conversation's sake here, that these entities derive some form of sustenance from human fear. Now, I know this is definitely, you know, we're skating on the edge of rational discussion here, but I think it's worthy of discussion because in that context, if there is a form of life that requires human fear to sustain itself, then... When that life form interacts with us, generates fear, feeds off that fear, and we refer to that thing as evil, well, is it evil from its point of view of having to survive by just so happens it likes to feed itself on human negativity? Is that evil? I would contend it's evil from our point of view, but maybe not from its point of view. And and I very often haven't heard this issue be brought up in the discussion of good versus evil because again it's almost as if good versus evil is a relative thing or uh, let me let me put it another way linda if you had to make it an absolute thing how would you go about making that argument that good and evil are absolute or would you i, I don't know i once heard an interesting description of, of good and evil uh from an eastern philosophy standpoint it was part of some Eastern religion, where there is, it's not really evil, it's that there are these beings that are there to test and trick you, and you will not advance in your levels of consciousness if you can't pass these certain tests. 
So we perceive them, you know, it's like the mean teacher who gives you the pop quiz that you fail because you need to be tested, you need to be proficient in this. Mm. So we perceive that as an evil teacher, but the, the teacher is just trying to make you better. So I could see where, you know, a lot of people who perceive things that, as evil, it's like, wow, you know, you keep making the same mistakes and you're blaming it on the universe. So there is certainly that. But then, you know, there's people like Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein. And, okay, those people are evil. I mean, they're then you're in a different realm. So I think there may be some gray area amongst the black and white where, uh, like you say, it's all it's all a matter of perception. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is really critical because, you know, the way that we seem to perceive the world these days is some sort of an epic battle between good and evil. And, and I'm just concerned when people couch very complex situations in that very simplistic sort of a view because, you know, basically in that in that specific application anything that doesn't for example advance the american cause is evil and i think about that and i think you know there's so many cases where certainly just and and we don't want to make this show into the politics show because that's always something that's just so easy to do for me and um, Gene sometimes pushes me in that direction, but this oh, is a show about no. paranormal. Oh, no, he blames stuff. me no. for everything. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. Because well, I'm here. I am, I am the person who is blamed. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your webpage? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can host I can and as a matter of fact they provide all our hosting too for this site and guess what their price starts at only $7 a month how could you go wrong it's reliability and speed speaks for itself and that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now it's host I can give them a try you'll be glad you did to learn more about host I can Go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Before David blames me for anything else, he's going to blame me for this. To tell you, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Ghost Hunter Linda Zimmerman is here. But we're talking about not just going to haunted houses, but about a very wide, a very important concept, which is the entire concept of good and evil, bad spiritual energy, good spiritual energy, and a lot of other stuff. Well, Fair. Sure. Well, we talk about suicides, right? So Linda now has investigated these places and is investigating these locations where people have killed themselves. And pretty much in every religious school that I can think of, suicide is one of these ultimate sins. It's it's just something that you should never even consider, much less do. And part of that is because of the damage it does to the people who remain. And the people who loved that person that killed themselves, now basically there's all this negativity on them. Now, now in that case, Linda, in these places where you've investigated these suicides, you're talking about this little girl who saw um, this guy who had killed himself. Did she get the perception from this, uh, this entity that 
it was dark or evil? I mean, what was the emotional context of her communication with this thing? Um, it, it was actually a little boy. Um, little and boy. He, at first, he was just curious about the man, but the more it persisted, a, a fear did build up because mm. suddenly this man with the gun would appear next to his bed or he'd see him in the television or he'd... It, it became... Uh, originally, it was innocent and a curiosity, oh, I'm going to talk to, you know, my friend, and it kind of grew in intensity and he became very, very afraid of it and wouldn't even go into his room after that. So, yeah, it's not that this was an evil man. He he was a desperate, very ill, you know, he was a sick man who couldn't stand the pain anymore and what he, what it was doing to his family. So I wouldn't call that evil. I don't know if I'm, you know, mincing good and evil oh. here. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. But I- I- even though it wasn't evil, uh, the little boy ultimately became scared enough by it did he try to convey to this entity that he was scared of him? What boy. happened was that actually the boy, it came to a an argument. One day the father heard the little boy like yelling at, at something. He went in the room and the boy was all alone in the room. He's like, who, who are you talking to? And he said, you know, that he was talking to this man. And he was yelling at him that I guess he had gotten agitated. I don't, you know, he didn't really elaborate. But whatever it was, the the emotion of the situation had gotten so intense that, you know, it actually broke into this bizarre argument. And he was like, you know, the boy was shut it off after that. He said, you know, I, I told him to shut up and leave me alone. So, it, it you know, this was like a three or four, you know, four-year-old boy. It was becoming too much for him. So, you know, every, every case is different. But this one, having experienced a, you know, even a few minutes of this, I could see where this would be just totally overwhelming for, you know, for a child who's maybe not quite sure what is reality and, you know, what's supposed to be the normal for the living and and the dead. And it, it was just too much. So what do you say to skeptics, Linda, that would say, in listening to what you just said, well, it's a child, you know, what, how can we be sure that this was a quote-unquote actual manifestation, did anybody besides the child experience it? Um, Other people have experienced things that not to his degree, but what I would say to the skeptics was, here's a young boy with absolutely no prior knowledge of a house who describes the man physically, he gets his name, his, his age, the fact that he had a gun and wanted to be shot and came up with all kind and also saw him where he would normally sit on a counter in the kitchen and this particular spot in the dining room, which the granddaughter later confirmed were his two favorite spots to sit. So how you can think a little boy would just imagine this and happen to be correct down to the name, the, the physical characteristics, the the cause of his death, the two places in the house where he, you know, fr- sat the most frequently. You know, this isn't like a pink dinosaur the boy was seeing. Right. Was, and it's not documented anywhere that he could have read it? Uh, he wasn't even born when the, I don't, or if he had been born, he was just a baby when the, you know, he clearly was not reading the newspaper. And when not they at moved four or in, five, yeah. Right, and 
when they first moved in, I think he might have been, you know, three or four. That range. Oh, okay, okay. The parents certainly did not tell him anything about this, you know, that you don't want to scare the, the heck out of your kids. So, <laughs> Boy, I should have introduced you to my brother. He, he wanted to tell me the scariest stories possible when I was very young. That's, he enjoyed talking about the creatures of the night. <laughs> Linda, oh, I'm sorry. I was just curious about something. You say the granddaughter of this person contacted you. Had there been any attempt to get the granddaughter to visit the house and attempt to communicate with her grandfather? She really doesn't want to, and, and I don't blame her. This is all still very traumatic for everyone. But the man's daughter actually did come to the house one night because she heard that these things were going on and when you know she said look what has actually been happening and when they described where he was being seen and you know the characteristics and the name and all that apparently she just broke into tears and, and had to leave it was too much because i believe she actually witnessed the shooting as well so oh, this what? You know, these, I always say these, these make great ghost stories to tell, but you have to realize this was a horrible, horrible tragedy, and the people are still emotionally scarred. You know, the living are still emotionally scarred as a result. So, you know, in a case like this, I will not give out the name or the exact location because you have to respect these people's privacy. They're still, they're still grieving and probably always will be. Yeah, I think it's important to bring up the the idea that for people interested in these topics, they're fascinated by this stuff very often in sort of a wide-eyed way going, ooh, you know, I want to see a ghost or ooh, I want to see a UFO. And what often they don't realize is that the people who have to live through this between not being able to discuss it in mixed company, between the, the sort of ridicule that these people are likely to receive from people not interested in the topic, and then also just the incredible discomfort of living in a place where you don't know what's there with you, that these people are not interested in visibility or talking to people who want to know more about what's going on. I think that's really important because um, people, I think, don't understand that when they have a casual interest in this topic um, and they hear about a haunting or they hear about paranormal realities, they sort of tend to want to go there and ask the people who are, for example, living in a haunted house, gee, what do you hear and what is it like being here? And they perhaps don't realize how difficult it is for people who have to live around these things in terms of the, the difficulty of discussing this with just the average person or even their friends. Well, possibly um, they think it's a game. Well, yeah, but, you know, I can say from my own experience that when you have a paranormal episode of any sort the last thing you tend to think is gee i'm so happy that happened to me you know it the, the and it's really hard to talk about these things because very often really what you're dealing with is a state of shock um i think for a lot of people who are interested in this topic they they don't understand that living with this is not entertaining and very often it's not even something that people want to pursue or talk about because they're just trying to get on with their lives right linda Exactly. That That's a very important point I stress continually because the number one question I'm asked is, oh, can I go with you to a haunted place? So the next time you're going, you know, we all want to go along. And I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, look, I always say, you know, these ghosts are, are not your pets. They're not, you know, entertainment at your next cocktail party. And the, these people, 
they're very reluctant to speak about it. Like you said, it's usually very traumatic. We all have enough to deal with in our lives without, you know, paranormal activity. And that's why I generally go alone or maybe with, you know, one or two other people. And I will not divulge names and locations if they don't want to. You have to respect their privacy because this is a very difficult situation for these people. And maybe that's why I've had, you know, the the type of availability, that access that I've been given because people know they can trust me to, you know, to not splash their name and everything on the front page. It's not Um, Casper the Friendly Ghost. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Linda Zimmerman, the ghost hunter, with us. And we're warning people off here that ghosts aren't playthings. So maybe the second question to ask is, if something strange happens in your home, what should someone do? Should they just move out, go to a Motel 6 and give it up or what? And I'm serious about this. Every situation, again, is different. You can politely ask whatever it is to stop frightening you. You know, I've had cases, several cases, where the children were scared and the parents just say very firmly, you know, look, you're here, that's fine, just don't scare the children. And, and it sometimes works. You can try to ignore it, you can, you can threaten it, um, you can bring in your priest, bring in a psychic. It, it all depends on your approach to it your feelings and the type of activity if it's an occasional footstep in the attic and you can live with it fine if something's being thrown at your head and you're terrified you know try to find someone who who deals with that kind of situation and can possibly do something about it well what can be done though and and in the context of bringing in a priest linda what are we to make of that in terms of a religious connotation? Is this a thing where religious doctrine somehow has power in that realm? I don't think, you know, words on a page have the power. I think whatever spiritual energy they would bring to it, you know, and I think it's all part of asking in a nice way, um, you know, for this, whatever entities are there to please move on. You know, I think the spiritual intent and maybe the compassion behind it might have a response. Um, In contrast, there was a case where a man kept hearing these footsteps passing behind him, and finally out of anger, he took a hammer and started swinging in the air and saying, hey, you want a piece of me? Come and get, you know, screaming and cursing at this thing. Mm -hmm. And a few nights later, he was 
pushed down a flight of stairs into a wall that had nails in it and was really badly cut up. And you know, I saw him recently. I said, swinging any hammers, are we? <laughs> you know, he's like, no, not doing that anymore. So, again, that was a case where violence, you know, brought along a violent reaction. But I think, you know, compassion is never wasted. And I think if you can bring compassion and understanding to a situation, it, it might help, you know, alleviate the, the activity. Hmm. But that again brings in this idea of the power of human emotion. So have you ever heard of a situation, Linda, in your research and in your work where there was a negative entity or a negative energy in a space and it was dissolved or changed by positive emotion brought to bear? I would say that the case, let me step back a little. When, when I first started doing this, I guess a couple of years in, I started getting a call here or there. People would say, what did you do? when you came to my house. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, since you've been here, the activity has stopped. And I was like, well, I, you know, I investigated, I researched, and I wrote the story. And I would say maybe 25, 30% of my cases, people have gotten back to me and said that, you know, since I was there or shortly after, whatever was happening stopped happening. The activity is gone. And I came to the conclusion that these things needed some kind of attention. They wanted their stories told. I'm researching their lives. I'm getting some answers. And I'm telling, telling their story and their, their plight, you know, as it were. And in some of those cases, it seems to be enough to give them some peace. Is the haunting gone forever? I can't say that, but uh, some of them for years now have been quiet because of just putting that attention on it, you know, and I, I always do this, you know, compassionately. I don't go in, you know, trying to drive everyone, you know, drive everything out. Mm-hmm. I try to get their story. I try to understand what's happening and when I can, you know, connect it to actual lives. Really interesting story. Do we still have a few minutes? Sure, go right ahead. A case I had written about several years ago in Liberty, New York, where basically they were seeing um, an older woman in the house and a couple of kids. And it was quiet for a little while. Then last year, I got a desperate email from the homeowner that these kids were bothering her son, who was about five or six, and they he wouldn't even go into his room anymore because the boy was saying that it was a boy and a girl, and they just wanted to play all night. And, you know, nothing evil, but they just wanted to play and, and you know, get the energy from this boy, and he, he couldn't take it anymore. So I brought a very talented local psychic, uh, Lisa Ann, up with me. I told her nothing about this location. As soon as we get there, she sees an old woman looking out of the attic window, so just hold on to that. And as soon as we get into the house, she goes, oh, I hear the pitter-patter of little feet. And I said, you, what do you mean? You know, what do you mean? She goes, kids. And I said, you know, what, what kind of kids? And she said, a boy and a girl, which is exactly what this boy had, had seen. And he, she said, they're not bad kids. They just want to play. Mm. And so she was really hitting on all these things. So we're saying, well, what can we do to have them not bother this 
you know, this poor boy any longer. Then, you know, we, we did an investigation and everything, and she was coming up again and again with this older woman. And she says, you know, I don't think this woman had any children of her own, and I think, you know, she took care of these kids and still, you know, after death is still here to take care of them. So she kept coming up with, I don't think they've had kids of their own. I don't think she ever married. We're getting ready to leave, and it was this nagging thing. You know, you've, you've got to got to pay attention to that gut feeling. I said, you know, I know everybody's got things to do today, but I said, but can we please go in the attic? I just feel that there's a reason we, there's something we need to find. So I was like, all right, all right. <laughs> so we went up into this little cramped attic, and I'm crawling around under the rafters and, you know, 100-year-old dust, and I find this book, and I should point out that she she thought this woman um, was connected with a script letter E. I find this little book buried in dust. I open it up, and it's from this woman, Mary E. Drake, this script E. And I was like, okay. Hmm. And in the back of this little textbook, this woman had scribbled almost like a diary notes. And we come across this passage that this woman says, I ain't got nobody to call me mom. And a few lines later, I'm getting goosebumps again, a few lines later, she's talking about embroidering towels for her female friends because she doesn't know any men. Oh, Which, boy. And yeah, my, you know, I just, your heart just sinks, and it's like, okay, this is a case where, you know, this woman never got married, she never had kids of her own, the two kids she loved and took care of died as children. And, you know, she lived a very lonely existence after that and is still, you know, trying to find some happiness in this home with the spirits of these two children. You raised a question there, which I wanted to kind of follow up on very quickly before you proceed with it. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to News at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. First, this is the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Linda Zimmerman, the ghost hunter. Are the lives of these ghosts, are they always troubled in some fashion? Are there situations mostly where people live normal lives, they don't return or haunt anyone or show presence of their existence in the afterlife, but people who had problems live that troubled life, they committed suicide, they were murdered, they have reason to want to stay in touch or find out about what happened to them. I definitely do not think there is any such thing as a happy ghost. There are benign spirits, but I think they're all stuck because of some tragedy, regret, something unfulfilled. Uh, My personal belief is there are better things or at least new things to move on to. And just about every case I've worked with, there is some emotional hook that is keeping these these spirits at this location. And if I could just continue to, to conclude the story, if it is a conclusion, after being there, the, the children stopped annoying the little boy 
he was able to sleep at night. And when I was speaking to Lisa Ann, she said, you know, I bet the activity with the children increased not because of the awareness of the children, but so that we would pursue it further with the older woman so that her story could come out. Here was a case we found the clues that had been sitting there probably for a hundred years, you know, and that persistent little voice, go into the attic, there's a reason, there's something we want you, you know, I want you to find. And once that story came out, the activity, you know, the disturbing part of that activity has ceased. So hopefully this woman mm. has found some peace. At the very least, the activity is is not noticeable at this point. So, you know, this was a very dramatic case, you know, to because so many times you never have any clues, and to that same day, you know, to be poking around in the attic and find find that handwritten material was was just amazing. One of one of the I don't want to you know satisfying. I don't know if that's the word for it, but it was a very gratifying case to get some answers like that and then get some relief for the people who were so desperate living there. Brings up an interesting uh, thing, Linda. That what do you think about this connection between the living world and this other place? Why do you think a human that had passed would need some level of recognition from the living world? And I think, you know, when people think about afterlife and what that potentially means, and, you know, this, of course, takes us in a whole other direction, but my own experiences um, seem to confirm to me that there is indeed some sort of a continuation. But I think what people what everybody wants to understand is the connection between these things. Why do you think, based on this experience and others that you've probably looked into, what is the need for recognition from this realm? Why, why would that be the case, do you think? I, I think because she lived such a life of regret and sadness, you know, I, it, it seemed that the one thing she wanted in life was, you know, a family and didn't have it. And that remorse, regret, has locked her into that place and perhaps the emotional support she didn't get in life is what she needed for us to all that day you know have a tear brought to our eyes saying oh god this poor woman maybe that was the little push the little acknowledgement because maybe nobody in life gave her that pure speculation but um the way the entire thing played out it seemed that something she didn't get in life she was sitting there waiting for someone to give it to her in death you know what you're you're sort of confirming for me at least is this idea that human emotion has an energy associated with it that is a very powerful and b completely unknown to us in terms of this connection to dimensional constructs that are not ours and when i say that i mean whatever afterlife is that there is an acknowledgement basically from what you're telling me that human emotional energy is tremendously powerful and to me it confirms the potential for there being this uh, situation where there are beings that somehow rely on this emotional energy from human beings for some form of sustenance. It, it seems to sort of make sense when you think about a, a living entity that has now passed but cannot proceed without emotional acknowledgement from beings that are left in the living realm. It's almost that, like their lunch. Well, 
Maybe it's their not. rite of passage, their rite of passage. Well, just what is the power of that energy? What is the, the, the actual measurable power of that energy? And maybe that energy is much more valuable than we even necessarily consider in this realm. And, and as a further extension of that, if you look at that, and you start to look at, for example, the situation the planet finds itself in now, it seems to underscore this idea that if you have a tremendous concentration of negative energy, it's going to have physical manifestations that our current level of science not only doesn't understand, but doesn't even acknowledge. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Linda Zimmerman, the ghost hunter, is here. And you had a comment, Linda, about what David just said? No, I, I think he's absolutely right. You know, tragedies, violence, strong emotional situations do leave an, an impact, an imprint, and can absolutely physically affect people. And, you know, the old uh, pebble in the, you know, in the water thing, the ripple effect. The ripples, yeah. Um, you know, years from now, I think, can certainly be felt. I mean, look at a very basic situation. You walk into a room where two people are having a really heated argument, how uncomfortable you feel with that with that anger in the room, you know, just between two people. So, you know, when you mass this with thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions, you know, I guess if you want to call it group consciousness, then yeah, it's very important to have that group consciousness be positive because it will have a ripple effect uh, around the world. Well, along those lines, Linda, this is something I asked you the first time you were on the show, and I want to follow up. Uh, since we had you on last time, have you heard any reports coming out of Ground Zero, a place in lower Manhattan where certainly on September 11th, 2001, there was an incredible amount of negative and, and, and very sad emotional energy that was concentrated into one place. Have, has there been, on your radar, any reports of haunting activity down there? Mostly emotional uh, responses. People who have either, you know, worked on the pile or have, you know, had something to do with cleanup and construction or, you know, even if, if you probably know, just driving by the place has, has a sense of sadness to it still. So no particular ghost stories, I, I, would, I would say, but more of an overall emotional impact that so many people have sensed there. You know, I sense, no, I haven't had very many experiences in terms of paranormal, and the ones I've had are so questionable that maybe they aren't to be taken seriously. The one thing I had in connection with that is the fact that about six weeks 
prior to 9-11, six or seven weeks prior to 9-11, my wife, myself, and my son went to the World Trade Center, and I couldn't climb that last escalator. I felt such an oppressive wave of fear and dread. Now, I'm not always comfortable with heights anyway, but in this particular case, it was really offensive, oppressive. So I sat in one of the restaurants and read a newspaper or something. Even then, I felt kind of wary. And then maybe a half hour later, they came down. We left. But it was something that really haunted me in a sense of recalling that feeling for several days thereafter. And I was reminded of it after the things that happened on 9-11. And I wonder if people did feel the same thing I did prior to the event. I know of at least six people I can think of offhand who had some kind of, if you want to call it a premonition, maybe not specifically of the World Trade Center, but some impending disaster. I just spoke to a woman recently who was night after night having these dreams and visions of two large structures on fire and collapsing, and then 9-11 happened, and, you know, she was saying, you know, she felt so guilty that she wasn't able to warn people about it, but, you know, it wasn't specific information, Uh, but I do know several people who had some kind of images, you know, fears like you sense, something about something horrible was, was going to be happening. So, you know, that's, that brings up a whole other spiritual ball of whack. What was it, you know, that, that was in the air that, that people sensed? You know, was this a predetermined thing? Was, you know, it's, it really brings up a lot more questions. Precognition is, is a very strange thing. And with reference to 9-11, about a month before that, I had a dream that, and, and I tend to forget most of my dreams like most people do, There are just a few that I've had that I have very clear memories of. The dream I have the clearest memory of in my whole life was a dream I had about a month before 9-11, where in the dream I was on a beach playing guitar with other people gathered around a campfire, and uh, the ocean was very calm, and it was a full moon that in the dream that night. And in the dream, I was playing the guitar, I was looking at the moon, and all of a sudden the moon shattered into pieces. It just, like, it it exploded. And moments after that, and of course that happens in the dream, and I'm looking up, and I'm like, oh my God. And moments after that, the ocean starts to come alive. These, These huge waves starts coming towards the ocean, and I felt underneath of me the entire gravity change. It's as if the earth were being yanked away from me and all of a sudden we all lost our footing and in the dream I dropped the guitar and I noticed that people around the campfire are getting up trying to to stand up and they keep falling down. And then I woke up and I and I was just absolutely just sweating and, and breathing hard and I didn't really connect that dream to nine eleven until a day or two afterwards when I realized that this whole sort of a feeling of the gravity changing, that it really felt that way after the days after 9-11. It felt like the gravity underneath my feet had changed. And then I realized that that sensation, essentially, I felt in that dream 
and and again, I'm not trying to say that it was precognitive, but what I can say is that I've never had a dream like that before or after that was a one-time dream like that. The sense of the gravity changing so much, it, it, it left this unease in me. And I'm guessing that a number of people had similar experiences. So, you know, is precognition real? It's hard to know, right? But at the same time, we know the emotional impact these things have. So it's, it's hard to just discount at face value. And what kind of reality and power do emotions have? Yeah. Emotions are, as I was saying before, they are, they are more potent than people, you know, will understand. And that, again, brings us back to, you know, be careful when you go to these haunted sites and, you know, respect what you're feeling and, you know, if you need to get out or step away for a while, you know, do it because it, it can really affect you. Mm-hmm. We only have a few moments left, Linda. Do you have some upcoming appearances, books or something that you'd like to mention right now? Well, I do have working on uh, Ghost Investigator Volume 7, which should be out, uh, I'd say, the end of September. You know, I'll have my schedule on my, you know, my website for upcoming appearances. Just did a few uh, paranormal conventions, but nothing, nothing in the immediate future, probably till the fall. Actually, I will maybe be conducting some personal ghost hunts at a place called Shanley's Hotel in Napanock, New York. Fascinating old, old hotel with, uh, I could, I could spend a whole show just telling you about what goes on in this place. And I, I did conduct one ghost hunt there and I've given a couple of lectures and I guess by popular demand I, I should, I will probably be doing something perhaps this summer or early fall. All right. Well, briefly, and we only have another minute or so left, what kind of apparitions or manifestations have you had at that particular location? There's a former brothel area, uh-huh. they call it, um, where women in particular are very affected. Um, I had trouble standing up straight. It's completely disorienting. Um, other women who knew nothing about it who went up there, one woman recently said it's like trying to stand on the deck of a moving boat. There's mm. just something almost other dimensional about that location there's a there's a secret hidden room where uh, bootleggers did their business where you get a real sense of panic there were several murders in the hotel the emotional impact of those are still there it's it really is like running the gamut of emotions when you go through this place so i, I i'll be writing about it in the uh the next book but it's, it's a fascinating place and you know for people who might be interested in this area check my website i will be i will be going back there for more lectures and and uh you know conducting some ghost hunts and linda's website is linked at the powercast website okay so no problem in finding it linda's Zimmerman, we appreciate the session talking with you again about your ghost hunting exploits, about possible explanations and or reasons for the manifestations. Thanks again for joining us on the PowerCast. Thank you. It was a a fascinating show. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Linda. The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the PowerCast. 